I feel like every night before I went to sleep, if I had a headache, if my head was throbbing, I would just remind myself, like, there may be pain tonight, but joy comes in the morning, and it always has. I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. We have quite possibly the most intense episode we've ever had on the Why Not Show to date, almost 200 episodes in, and and here we are. This is so good. Lauren Holiday is on the show today, and Lauren is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. She's a Women's World Cup champion, incredible soccer player, and incredible human overall. The majority of the time, we do not talk about Lauren's soccer experience and and professional life. She's now retired, and she's had quite the journey post-athletic career. And and in her retirement, she will share her story, and I'm so grateful she does because she has not shared it a lot to this point. Um, We're privileged to get to hear the journey that she's been on and learn from her. One of the things that is so clear is that Lauren's Why Not Now actually does have something to do with soccer, but more so around mindset and how the mindset and the mental game that she had as she navigated her athletic career, how much it has applied to her everyday life and her personal world. I'll give you a quick sneak peek, but I'll really leave the details to Lauren because she does such a great job of explaining what's happened. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor when she was pregnant. And this was news, of course, that massively changed her life, her family's life, and and all of those that loved her. She shares what this was like, what happened kind of step-by-step, play-by-play. And the real story is how she was able to navigate this journey. And For us to be able to glean some of the tools, some of the things she's learned is truly a gift. The life that Lauren has lived thus far is like something out of a movie. Yet what she's been able to distill from her life experience is applicable in the tools that she's created and used that are proven that have worked and helped her. 
they're all applicable to things that you and I are going through today, whether it's a huge, crazy, severe amount of adversity or it's something that's fairly minor. What she shares can really be helpful in almost any situation. I was fortunate to meet Lauren in person at a fundraising event in Philadelphia. Uh, We are both NICU moms, and we connected over that commonality. And I just immediately loved her outlook, loved her energy. And fast forward, here we are together on the podcast. I think this is just such a good reminder of, you know, we go through these different things in life, and I reflect upon the adversity around my son Lincoln being born three months early, being in the NICU, and how that's led to so many different points in my path, like this one here today, getting to speak with Lauren, that have brought so much purpose. This is something I could have never planned, would have never imagined, and um, we truly can leverage adversity. It's an asset in disguise if we choose to reframe and if we choose to accept what it's here to teach us. So Lauren's a great example of that, and uh, I'm honored to be able to have this conversation with her and share with you. Are you ready for change? Or maybe you're already in a season of expansion. As we embrace this new decade, are you ready to take action on your own Why Not Now idea? Maybe that means starting the company, launching the podcast, writing the book, or doing more public speaking, injecting your why into what you are doing. At the end of the day, that is exactly what creates connection. And connections convert. My life work is to help guide women through this very stage in their life. I do this through the Renegade Brand Bootcamp. It truly is the career love of my life. The reason I love this program so much is because I'm able to create a mosaic, a collection of like-minded, like-hearted, driven women who come together to level up. They learn the renegade mentality directly from me, and I share everything I've learned over the past 20 years in business. It's equal parts education, collaboration, accountability, and community. We are accepting applications for our 2020 program, and you are welcome to go check everything out about the program at renegadebrandbootcamp.com. And as a very first step, just sign up for my five-day email series. I uncover all of the questions about the bootcamp and help you understand if it's right for you. We've had some incredible women come through the program, and you will hear from them as well. You can check out the curriculum, the structure, the vibe, and everything in between. Many years ago, I went to Mark Cuban and asked him for investment advice. I thought I was going to get some real estate or stock market type of advice. Instead, he said, invest in yourself. Invest in your own growth. Invest in yourself. Bet on yourself. This is the best ROI you will ever find. If you're at that point where you are ready to take action, head to renegadebrandbootcamp.com. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery, the original before-you-go toilet spray. It's magic. 
My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you-know-what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit Poopery.com, and why not now listeners get 20% off with code why not now. That's all one word. And you can hear the story about Poopery in our interview with founder Susie Batiste. That's Why Not Now, episode 28. Poopery is also available at Bed Bath & Beyond. Lauren, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today and look forward to this conversation for sure. Let's hop right in, as we usually do, in the spirit of Why Not Now. Can you tell me about a time when you had a big decision to make and you had to ask yourself, why not now? Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. I've actually racked my brain on this one for a while now. Um, Knowing I was coming on the podcast, I was like, man, what am I going to say? And it really just came to me the other day. I was thinking about just reflection on my life and my career playing soccer and everything. And I feel like a defining moment for me in my career, my soccer playing career was in 2008. I was a sophomore in college. I had trained with the Olympic team all the way leading up to the final cut of the Olympic roster. And I was cut on that final cut. So devastating. I, mm. I think I was 18 or 19 years old. And I remember just being like completely crushed flying back to the States because we were in Japan at the time um, when she named the roster. Our coach at the time was Pia Sundhaga and she announced the roster in Japan. And then we had to fly home. I remember like all of us like consoling each other, but also being so happy for the people who made it. Um, But I would have to say it was probably one of the biggest gut punches I had ever um, received to be cut the absolute final cut of the roster. And so we flew home. I actually went back to Indiana. I was staying with my parents at the time. And we I had summer break until I could go back to UCLA. Immediately when I got home, like I enrolled in summer school and I had talked to the men's coach and I was going to practice with the men's team. I, I had already like had a huge plan of like, okay, how am I going to get better this summer? How am I going to make things better? And Before we go to the Olympics, the U.S. national team, they have a a tour before they head off to the Olympics. And we play a couple games in the United States, a couple friendlies to get ready for the Olympics. And they were playing their last friendly. And I remember my dad, he's sitting in the living room and he's like, come on, aren't you going to like watch the game with me? And I'm like, no, I can't watch. I'm going to, you know, pack for school. I was packing my stuff. I was supposed to go back to UCLA. Um, so I'm not at all involved in the game. I'm not watching. I'm not listening. And then I hear my dad yell and he's like, Lauren, Lauren, come here. I I think Abby's hurt. I think Abby's hurt. And Abby played my position. She's also, um, arguably one of the best women's players, if not the best women's player of all time. And I'm like, Oh dad, she's fine. She's so dramatic. And anyone that knows Abby, like, you know, she's really dramatic. (laughs) So I'm like, she's totally fine. Like, stop it. So I keep packing and, uh, I have my phone next to me and my phone rings and I'm like, it's weird. It says Abby Wambach is calling me. And so I answer the phone and she's like, Shane, 
that's what they called me. My last name was Cheney before holiday. She's like, Chain, um, I just, I wanted to tell you you're going to the Olympics. And I'm like, Abby, you're crazy. And you're probably on drugs right now, like from medicine, like being hurt. You're okay. And she's like, no, I'm 98% sure my leg is not detached to my body. You're going to go to the Olympics. And I remember my heart dropping and I, I tried to play it off like, you're going to be all right, Ab. No, like, you're fine. And we got off the phone and I don't tell my dad. He's in the other room. I don't tell anyone. I just kind of sit there. And then about 10 minutes later, I get a phone call from the GM and she says, hey, Chain, you ready? Like, pack your bags. You're coming to the Olympics. You're going to meet us in San Francisco. You know, we leave in a week. Oh, my goodness. And I remember in that moment, like, which is crazy for me to think about now, I wasn't happy. Like, I wasn't overjoyed. I wasn't excited. Well, first, my friend, Abby, was obviously injured and seriously injured. So that didn't make me happy. But also, I think it was a pride thing. Like, I didn't make the team originally, like, coming on as a alternate for the Olympics, like, you know, feeling like maybe I wasn't good enough to make the team or I wasn't going to have a chance to play. I think a lot of that all went through my head. And I remember just sitting in my tiny room in my parents' house and just racking my brain with questions of like, what do I do? What does this look like for me? Like, am I happy? Am I like, I'm going to sit the bench the whole time. And I feel like my why not now moment was when I decided like, I'm going to go to the Olympics and I'm going to be the best teammate that I can possibly be. Like I am going to cheer my butt off for every single person. I'm going to be the loudest. I'm going to help everybody that I can possibly help while I'm there. And I feel like my whole mentality changed in that moment. And the pressure was off of me like to perform. And I went into the Olympics and I had a wonderful time. I didn't play the first three games, but I ended up being the first player off the bench in the quarters, semis and finals. And I feel like that never would have happened had I went into it doubting myself or even questioning like why I was there or being upset with the fact that I had gotten cut. Um, But I feel like that was a huge moment for me to really just like invest in my team. And in return, they, I feel like they invested in me and that was the only time I had, I got cut and every other Olympics and world cup I played in, I was a starter. Oh my goodness. What a story, first of all. And I got full goosebumps when you said you decided your why not now moment of deciding you were going to switch your mindset and be the best teammate you could possibly be. And it's amazing hearing you say that, how I could energetically feel how that changed your entire experience, right? That that decision and that ability to shift your mindset like that. Whoa. Totally. I actually, it's hilarious because like anyone on that 2008 team, there were three of us young players together and they ended up calling us team annoying because every time we yelled on the bench, like we were so loud that our coaches were even probably like, oh my gosh, you guys like shut up. <laughs> but we, they named us team annoying. And I remember like being so proud. Like, yeah, that's what I like. That's what I was here to do. You know, like I promised myself that that was the attitude I was going to come in with. And like, honestly, it was such an amazing experience in 2008. 
I had I was young. I was in college, yeah, a sophomore in college, sophomore. and so I got to learn from so many athletes, and I feel like that just like really shaped my career mentally and like physically being able to play at that level. Oh my goodness. And so you were what, maybe 20 years old, probably, or around there? I was 20 yet. I think I was 19. 19. And to have the emotional intelligence and the mental strength to make that decision of, okay, I'm going to create my reality at the Olympics the first time. How did you prepare? So as an athlete and, and as someone that's performed at the level you have and competed, how do you even develop the mental side of things, the the mindset? Is that something that you're given tools uh, along the way, you know, as you were in college, as you then, you know, made your way into competing professionally? How does that even work? <laughs> to be honest, I think that there are so many athletes in every single sport that talent-wise, they are probably so much better than some of the people that actually make it, make it to the NBA, make it to the NFL, make it to the WNBA, make it to the U.S. Women's National Team. There are probably so many players like with the physical ability to do it, but the mental um, is so much more important, and that's what I've realized. And I'm not convinced that it's learned necessarily. I feel like I've had a competitive nature my entire life. I remember, this is like another funny story, what my sister and my brother and I talk about, like growing up, my, you know, we would go to school, my mom would like pack our lunches, or she would, you know, get us ready to go to the school bus, and she would say something to all of us, but from as long as I can remember, maybe my first day of kindergarten on, my mom always told me to be humble, and Every time we would go to school, every time I would go somewhere, she'd always say, remember, be humble. And I feel like I asked her when I had JT, my daughter, mom, why did you always tell me that? And so young. And she was like, because I knew you had it in you to not be. I knew you had it in you to be like overly confident. I knew you had it in you to, you know, to possibly not be humble. And so I really think that my like my parents shaped that in me at such a young age. I think that I already like innately had the drive and the competitiveness. That was just something that I I feel like I was born with. Oh, what gold for your mom to have that vision of and how much it's probably helped you along the way. Little did you know until you had JT and oh, that's that's incredible. So you, you have this career and, you know, I'd love to, you know, follow through and, and eventually you end up retiring. And were you the first, was your jersey the first to, to be retired from the league? It was. I do believe it was. That's pretty rad in itself. You've been to the Olympics several times, Women's World Cup final. Fun fact, we rode back on the same plane we figured out when we first, you and I first met, from Germany, right? So was that 2011? 2011 World Cup. Which is crazy because we didn't know each other and I was just lucky to be on that flight as a guest of Nike's. And that was such an experience for me to see how incredibly international and um, vibrant the the game was, the whole, just the environment. And in playing Japan that year as well, 
they had just gone through the earthquake. And I just remember how emotional it was to see after after the final. But so you have, you, I mean, you've played at the top and with Abby. And I think you had mentioned at one point when we were on a call a few weeks ago, you ended up being roommates down the line after the 2008 kind of situation. Yeah. Ab, so I think I told you I shared with you and maybe I'm sharing too much of the U.S. Women's National Team secrets. But um, <laughs> when I was there, we would we were allowed to pick you know, a list of people that we would want as our roommates or not want or, you know, and not even because we didn't like each other, more so just like lifestyle. So-and-so stays up late. I like to go to bed early, you know, like that kind of like compatibility Mm -hmm. as roommates. And so people would write down their top three or, you know, their top two, or maybe they only had one. I don't know. But for me, like very rarely did anything bother me. If someone uh, stayed up late, I could still sleep. Like there wasn't a lot that bothered me. So I always said, just put me with anyone. Well, Abby was on like everybody's no roommate list because she snores. <laughs> Abby is like a major snorer. And so they were like, no, we're not, you know, we didn't want Abby on our list. So in major tournaments, Abby and I were usually roommates cause it didn't bother me. Um, so yeah, it was, it's a lot of fun. I feel like we have such a good bond. And when you do life with somebody on the road, with all those girls and we're on the road so many days out of the year to over 200. I feel like, you know, your lives are just, that becomes your family. I can only imagine. And then you add the pressure and the, the spotlight and the personal growth. And it's just like in this little packed filled container as you navigate, you know, as you navigated out of playing professionally and, that transition. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what that was like and then what comes next? Obviously, there's been a lot. uh, You have a very full life and there's been a lot that's happened since. And that's actually how we met, given that we are both NICU moms. Can you take us on the journey post-athletic career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess we should talk about like how I made my decision or how I got to that point because I kind of retired and I, I, what would people, people would say like the peak of my career, the eight, that at that age, um, range, I had won two championships in the NWSL and I won a world cup. I had won two Olympics and I had always felt like even when, you know, soccer was everything. I was in the pinnacle of my career. I'm playing in world cups. I'm playing in Olympics for me, I always struggled with this, but I always thought that there was something more, like there was something bigger than me. Like there was a reason I was playing the game, whether that be like for my faith, for people to see my faith, for me to be able to help somebody or touch somebody. Like I always felt like when I was like in other countries and things, I would feel it the most of just like, this can't be it. Like it can't just be to kick the ball, even though that was like my love, my passion, I enjoyed it so much. I lived and breathed soccer my whole entire life. But I always had like that itch. And I really, I just, I started to pray about it probably two years before this. And I knew I had to make my decision before the 2015 World Cup happened. Because if I did not win the 2015 World Cup, I felt like, and I didn't make a decision, I would never stop. You know, I would be like, no, I have to win. I'm extremely competitive. I would I would think, like, I have to win a World Cup. I have to do this. So I think it was about January of the World Cup year, and 
I just like had an overwhelming sense of peace. Like, this is it. Like, enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. This is, this is it. Like after this, like you're going to move on. And I just knew like, okay, I'm going to move on and there's going to be more, there's going to be something more and I'm going to do more. And like, it's just going to be revealed to me. So fast forward, we win the world cup. Uh, we do the victory tour. I finished the NWSL. We win a championship. Feels like the cherry on top. I retire. Drew and I decide to start a family. I end up getting pregnant right away. Like right when we start and it feels like, okay, this is what was supposed to happen. It felt like everything was like going as I planned and maybe like four or five months into the pregnancy, I start having these very odd symptoms. Like my gums are numb. My face is numb. They're just like things that don't feel right. And I guess like as an athlete, I've trained my body my entire life. I know what my body feel is like when it feels good and when it feels right. And it just didn't. And so I started questioning. I started having lots of questions, but that's when I woke up one night with a crazy, crazy headache and Drew wasn't there. I was by myself. I put myself in the bathtub to try to calm down because I had never felt a headache like this or any sort of pain like this. Once I calmed myself down, I was like, okay, like I have to go to the doctor and I need an MRI. And at this point I had been to doctors, I had been to neurologists and everyone that I talked to had told me like, Lauren, we think you have MS, but we most likely like can't, we're not going to do an MRI until after you deliver the baby. Let's just wait and see. There's nothing really we can do about it now while you're pregnant. So let's just wait until after you deliver. So the MRI was something that I decided in that moment, like I'm going to push for, I need the MRI. I need to have it like now I need to know what's happening to me. And was the MRI, the reason they weren't doing it in the beginning is because it's, is it not necessarily something you do usually when you're pregnant? Yeah, my understanding is they don't have enough research on it while mm -hmm. you're pregnant. They say it should not hurt you, and especially, like, it being um, on my brain and not yeah. my belly. They can still cover my belly and everything. I think they felt more comfortable, but I think I had to sign a waiver. I had to sign, you know, yeah. sign some say yeah. that it was okay for them to do while I was pregnant. And so how scary this entire situation. I mean, any way you look at it, then what happened? I went the next day. I was actually supposed to get on a flight back to L.A. because that's where my husband and I were staying for the summer. That's where he trains um, during the summer. And I just wanted them MRI before I got on the plane. So I went and got them MRI. This man, I'll never forget, he was an older man, and he was an MRI tech. And so sweet. You know, this. I think I was five months pregnant at the time, five or six months pregnant. So, you know, I have a belly and he's like, just so gentle. And I could tell like when I got up off the table, like in his face, the worry in his face that like something was wrong. Mm. And he told me, he's like, honey, just stay here. You know, the doctor said he's going to call you. Just like stay, just wait here. And a good friend of mine was with me who actually worked at the hospital, who had, like, set up the MRI, like, helped me get the MRI and everything on such short notice. And she's like, it could be nothing, like, you're fine. But I think she also saw, like, the worry in his face. And I got a phone call maybe 10 minutes later, 
and it was the doctor and he was like, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is you don't have MS and the bad news is you have a very, very large brain tumor. So in that moment, I mean, how do you even process that information? I'm not sure that I processed right away. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, I, I feel like when you hear brain tumor, my first question was, do I have cancer? Like, is this cancer or what, you know, like what now, what do I do now? I did ask him, is it cancer? And he said he didn't believe it to be cancer. He believed it to be benign. And so I said, okay, I took a breath. He asked if I could come in the next day because usually they wouldn't tell you over the phone, but because I was getting on a flight, he knew I was getting on a flight. He wanted me to stay and not get on that flight. And so I remember hanging up the phone with him and calling Drew. And he was at rehab, like getting treatment. And I called him and I said, hey. And I'm, I like don't even think I could get the words out by this point. Like the second I heard his voice, I start crying. I told him what happened. And he drove from wherever he was straight to the airport and bought a ticket at the desk and got on the flight back to new Orleans. Mm. My goodness. Yeah. And I remember like being an absolute wreck until he got to new Orleans. And when I picked him up, I remember like, I didn't cry. Mm. I felt like, okay, like now, now we can make a plan. Like we're together. We can figure it out. Oh, Obviously wow. it didn't last long, but we could, I feel like I had my moments, but once Drew got there, I, I do remember feeling like a lot more secure. Isn't that amazing? Just the physical presence and what it can do to us emotionally and when certain people are around. So you are, so you're five, six months pregnant and are you getting clarity at this point? Like are doctors able to speak to you with certainty on the health of the baby and, and for you and what's going to happen next? Or is there a lot of unknowns of the very next step? So when we, we went to the doctor the next day in New Orleans and the neurosurgeon, like who would have to meet with me, I believe he was out of town. So we met with just a neurologist who I think he tried his best to answer our questions, but immediately Drew was like, we're going to LA We're you know, we're trying to find like the best of the best. And I remember we went to LA and we met with someone at Cedar Sinai and they were awesome. But I had emailed my team cause I was just so freshly retired. I had emailed them like to tell them, Hey guys, I got bad news. This is what happened. You know, I have a brain tumor just so all of you know. And one of the team doctors wrote, or I think team trainers wrote back and he was like, Hey, I like work at Duke. And I think the best neurosurgeon in the world is at Duke. Do you want me to like get in con get him in contact with you? And I'm just like, absolutely. And so when I finally had my doctor's appointment in LA at Cedars, I told the guy, Hey, yeah, thank you for, you know, everything. Thank you for that. I'm also going to meet with a guy at Duke. And he asked me, he was like, is his name Dr. Friedman? And I said, yeah. He was like, I won't be seeing you again. <laughs> Once you go to him, like, that's, that's, that's it. Like he, he's the best of the best. Wow. And so, um, and it was true. Right. When I met him, like, I feel like I knew I was like, yeah, there's no one else. Like I want him. 
Oh my gosh. Oh, so how do you, I mean, how does this like sharing the rest of, of the next several months and then here comes JT and I can't, I can't even imagine, you know, what the day to day must feel like and look like for you. For me, um, the hardest part for me was JT, like having her in my belly, because all I could think about was, okay, what do I have to do? Like me physically, what do I have to do to keep her safe? Mm -hmm. Like, and as a, as a mom that I like a mom to be, uh, athlete, everything inside me, just a woman, like you're, you're, my body was failing me. Like, that's how it felt. Like my body has failed me. Like everything that I've trusted my whole entire life, like everything that I've known to be true, like isn't true. Like I have a brain tumor, like how, when, you know, and I can't walk straight in a straight line because of this brain tumor and I can't chew correctly or swallow my food without telling myself to swallow my food. Like my body is literally failing me. Like, what do I have to do to make sure that at least she's safe? And so I remember like the rest of my pregnancy, you know, my mom was like, maybe you should have still have a baby shower. And like my mindset had already changed. It was like, it was no longer like, Oh, fun pregnancy, like Mm -hmm. experience. It was like, I'm on a mission. Like how do, how do I make sure that like whatever happens to me, nothing happens to her. And so I just remember that was how I spent the next um, couple months. The doctors, my OB team was amazing at, in, at Duke also. And they worked with my neurosurgeon and they would see me weekly. And as I was progressing, like to get getting worse and worse, um, obviously my OBs were getting more and more nervous and, my neurosurgeon finally like sat down and met with me. I think I was 32 weeks and I, they had admitted me back to the hospital because I was having like such bad migraines. And my neurosurgeon was like, look, Lauren, a baby at 32 weeks and 35 weeks, like the IQ is different. And if you want to try to make it to 35, that's what I think. I think you can make it. I think you're strong enough. I think you can do it. And so from that moment, I was like, I have to make it to 35 weeks. And they set up uh, a C-section. I had to go under general anesthesia um, in, just in fear of a stroke because the my tumor had grown so large. There was no room in my head. Like They were like, you can't push. There can't be any pressure mm-hmm. in your head. So they put me under general anesthesia and they delivered JT uh, at 35 weeks. Wow. So you made it another three weeks from that conversation, which is like, I mean, that's 21 It days. felt like forever. It um, felt like forever. And it's like, okay, so, you know, it sounds like there couldn't be any trauma, no pushing. And then as soon as JT is out, do you know she's safe and okay? And then did you know at the time what, what they would do for you, like in terms of surgery or – or was it wait and see until JT arrives? So the plan was deliver me September 20th uh, via C-section under general anesthesia, wait four weeks for my body to recover, and have brain surgery October 20th. In my mind, I thought if I wait to 35 weeks, JT's fine. She's good. Like, I'm going to go home with her. 
and we're gonna like recover together and then I'll have brain surgery like we'll be totally fine but when I delivered her like especially via c-section you know she swallowed some water her lungs weren't fully developed and she went to the NICU so when I woke up from anesthesia Drew was next to me my husband but JT wasn't there and then I remember him telling me like when I woke up he's like babe, she's beautiful. Like, she's so beautiful. You did so good. You did such a good job. And I'm thinking, I remember like thinking in my head, like, but where is she? Mm -hmm. And then they told me, okay, she's in, she is in the NICU, but she, you know, she's doing okay. She's good. Just having some breathing issues. But, and I remember in that moment feeling like I failed, like I made it to 35 weeks, but like I failed. She's not okay. She's not like, she's in the NICU. Like my whole goal was to make make it so she wouldn't be in the NICU oh man gosh it's like you had so many just huge bursts of adversity in in the news and so she was in the NICU for how long was it like a week she was in the NICU for one week and I remember like man I had her I delivered her and then you know well, I, because I was under general anesthesia, I didn't have an epidural or anything uh, or a spinal. So I was allowed to go see her as soon as I was fully awake and out of um, anesthesia. So that was a good thing. But they didn't let us hold her for two days because she was under a hood. They wanted her oxygen levels, you know, to stay up. Um, so I remember I didn't get to hold her the first two days. And I remember reading a report or my phone blowing up, like I had 300 text messages because someone reported that I had the baby, Drew and I had the baby and she was healthy. And I just remember losing it in the hospital. And I'm like, how dare them? Like, she's not healthy. You know, she's not here. She's, and in hindsight, like she was healthy. We had a healthy baby girl. Like, yeah, she needed a week in the NICU. But in my mind, healthy was like, she was with us and I was holding her. And I feel like in that moment, I was, like, anti, like, I'm never telling the media anything, like, I'm never, like, sharing my story, I don't want to talk to anybody, like, because I felt like they failed me, they, they reported something that I was feeling so different about. I can only imagine, and nobody knows what you were really going through, regardless of any of the details, I mean, what it's like to be, no one knows what, what that's like anyway, right. let alone people cheering and congratulating you and me and you're in this different reality which is like a whole nother part of the story I think too because you were even asked to like go on some huge television shows and it it sounds like you were just like no thanks I'm you know you wanted your you wanted to just be probably yeah for sure yeah oh my gosh Oh, this, it's, the story, this story is just, I mean, yeah, as many times as, as you've shared, I, it's absolutely incredible, incredible because it's not over. You still have surgery, right? And so you get through that week with JT and then is it about three weeks later you end up having brain surgery? Yeah, exactly. I had, I had JT September 20th and I had brain surgery October 20th and I remember, so we get through the NICU, JT was, she was okay, but I don't know, like in the NICU, they check everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they check JT and they 
found a couple heart murmurs, which I also had open heart surgery when I was three years old. I had a hole in my heart um, and an artery in the wrong place. So when they told me she had a hole in her heart and a heart murmur, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is all my fault, like everything. I remember like having to process that in, while she was in NICU, feeling like so guilty. Like the reason she's in the NICU is because I had to have her early you know, now she has a heart murmur, like, that's totally, like, my fault, but little did I know, a lot of babies are born with holes in their heart. Actually, I'm pretty sure the doctors told me that, like, ten mm-hmm. times, um, but you, you, <laughs> I was easily ignoring that, and uh, a week, they're like, she's ready to go home, and I could finally breathe, I felt like, but then it was like, I was preparing for something totally, you know, different, and um, going home, my doctors were like, walk, keep yourself, you know, like make sure that you're um, taking care of yourself. Also getting sleep. Don't wake up for the feeding in the middle of the night. Like make sure Drew's doing that. Um, so like my regimen shifted from like being all about JT to being all about myself, like making sure that I was going to be prepared for the next chapter, the next surgery. Oh man. Looking back at that time, that interim between when JT was born and before your surgery, are there any tactical things that you realize now that you did to really to help you just get through this? I think that something that I did really well in between those times where I didn't like I didn't let myself go down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I didn't let myself go down the what if, what if, what if. Um And I think that my husband had a lot to do with that. Um, We would obviously talk about it, but it was never like as if something bad was going to happen to me. Um, Even after you have all the scary doctor's appointments where they're like, this is what could happen in this surgery. Um, I feel like I've heard everything that could happen. But when I went home to talk to Drew about it, he was like, they said that? Are you sure? I'm not sure that, that, you know, like he had kind of blocked that out also, but I think that that was probably the best thing that I did in between the time was just focusing on JT and not going down the rabbit holes of what if, like, well, what if I wake up paralyzed or what if I wake up and I don't have this or what if I don't wake up? I feel like I didn't let myself go too far that way. Amazing. And I just think about how your why not now at the top of this conversation it really ended up revolving around mindset. And in a way, you, you're training for, not that you can ever fully be prepared for this, I can't even imagine, but you, it seems like what you had gone through and probably the situations you had been in was preparing you for some intensity that was not even imaginable. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I just, yeah, my upbringing and playing the sport, soccer and playing like sports my whole life and just everything I had trained my body to do and my mind to overcome leading up to this, I think was, was huge for me. I'm not sure that I would have gotten through it the way that I had, had I not had that background. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I just think about how you were telling yourself, you know, you always thought there was something more. This can't be it. I can't just be here to kick the ball, per se. And 
little did you know what was, you know, and here you are now sharing this story who's, and it's going to help other people with adversity and we're not even through it yet. So let's actually get to the surgery. It's like, whoa. Okay. So I can imagine that interim was just very, yeah, having a newborn, not being able to kind of put them first and knowing you have to put yourself first, but thank goodness you have such a a tight, amazing family bond too with Drew. And, and so you get to your surgery time and tell us about that. I had to admit myself to the hospital the day before surgery. Drew and I went to the hospital. I remember we had a very thorough conversation about not bringing JT's with surgery. She was just four weeks old. I didn't want her in the hospital. I was being a typical mom, like germs and mm-hmm. so Thank many you, people. Mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't need to go to the hospital, you know, she doesn't need to be there. We knew the surgery was going to be long, possibly, you know, 10 plus hours. So I remember us having that conversation. I remember checking in uh, to the hospital. They had to wash my hair with like, I promise you it was acid. Uh, It looked, it was horrible, but they, you know, had to wash my hair. They had to put all these like little trackers on my head so they could monitor who knows what brain activity, everything on my head. Um, and then it was like waiting, you know, Drew and I just in the hospital there, t- they told me eat what you want before midnight after that, you know, you can't eat. So for us, it was like, not only being away from JT was hard. She's not even a, a month old or she's just at a month old, but then also like anticipating the surgery. But I remember us watching funny shows and trying to laugh. I don't, we didn't get any into anything like super deep. We kind of made fun of me. Like I remember sending pictures of myself to my friends at this point, my eye like wasn't fully moving. So my eye looked a little funny Then I had all these like little trackers on my face and head. And so I, I remember feeling like very lighthearted going into it. And I remember feeling very at peace. Um, once the day of surgery came, And then, you know, we woke up at five o'clock in the morning, they're prepping me. And I remember looking at my husband and being like, I am an idiot. JT has to be there. Like, how is he going to get through this without me and without JT? And so I told him, I'm like, babe, JT has to come to the surgery. And literally everybody that was at my surgery, they tell me to this day, that was the best decision I had ever made in my whole entire life because she lightened the room. She made everything like people could laugh and they could smile and they could hold her. And she's, you know, four weeks old and sweet and sleeping in people's arms. And, you know, then Drew at least had her to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was probably in the whole thing, the best decision I made um, because my surgery was 10 hours long and obviously very stressful for my loved ones. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Thank goodness that you you had that realization and you were you were, you know, pretty strong in your desires of communicating and making it happen. Uh, I can't I can imagine just the difference in the energy in in the waiting in those 10 hours with her present. Oh wow, 10 hours by the way. Whoa. Um, so do you remember waking up and, and where you were or? I do. I, I remember, um, going 
back into surgery and telling my surgeon who I'm still, you know, obviously I, I just think the world of, but I remember telling him before I went under anesthesia that like I had prayed for him and he told me that like he needed all the prayers that he could get. So he like appreciated it that mm. I, that was the last thing I remember telling him before I fell asleep. And then when I woke up, I <laughs> I don't remember this, but my husband and my sister make fun of me because when they came in to see me after surgery, I guess I was extremely thirsty, which I think is pretty normal. And so they gave me water and I'm drinking and I'm drinking and I like finally stopped drinking and I looked at the doctor and I was like, it's not quenching. <laughs> and and my sister and my husband said it took all of their power not to just like die laughing at me (laughs) but I guess I I told them it wasn't flinching my thirst so um I just remember being extremely thirsty and waking up and I was in ICU they took me to ICU right away um and ICU was probably the worst part of my story I ended up so I've never, I don't take medicine. Like I'm, I've never had alcohol in my life. I've just like been kind of one of those people that don't put a lot of things in her body. So when I woke up from surgery for pain meds, like I'm also on an empty stomach, they ended up giving me a pretty strong pain medicine and I, I didn't take it well. So like the first night in ICU, I just spent getting sick and mm. I have a big head wrap on my head. I can't move. So like I could barely move to the side. I'm in ICU, so it's just, it was just, it wasn't great the first night in ICU. But after that, my neurosurgeon came in, told them, like, only Tylenol. Like, don't don't give her anything heavier than Tylenol. Like, she can't take it. And I remember him coming in late, late at night, and I, I think I literally, like, grabbed his jacket, and I told him, like, get me the hell out of here. Like, what do I have to do to get out of here? And he told me, he's like, well, you have to go to the restroom on your own and you have to try to walk. And he's like, if you can walk, I'll put you, I'll move you out of ICU. And so like, that was my, my focus. The morning time came, I was like, I want the catheter out. I, I want to walk. My husband was like terrified of me. I think I was on steroids. I'm not sure if it was roid rage or just like <laughs> me waking up from surgery, but, uh, he got, whoever I needed in there and I ended up walking uh, not on my own but with help and they moved me down from ICU and I left the hospital a day later oh my goodness that determination I had two neurosurgeons and one of my neurosurgeons he came in when I was getting discharged and he was like get back in bed and I was like what do you mean he was like the surgery I just did on you 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 should be in here a week, like one week minimum. Like you get back in bed. And he his name's Doctor Fukushima. He's from Japan, and he's like amazing. He pretty much invented the surgery that I had because my tumor was in the base of my skull. And he's like, get back in bed. And he just like could not believe that after two days post surgery that I was going home. My goodness! Oh my goodness! Oh, wow. And uh, I mean, were you in a lot of pain? Like, did you have a major headache? What, what is it even? Did you No, have... it's amazing. I don't, from what I understand, and I'm not, a, I'm not a neurosurgeon, so I could be wrong. People could totally critique me on this, but you don't have 
uh, nerve endings in your brain or there's not nerve endings somewhere. So like, it's not actually painful. So like the surgery itself wasn't painful as much as it was like, you feel pressure. Like, you know, they wrap your head so tight. They're trying to keep, you know, bleeding under control, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I remember feeling pressure more so than pain. Interesting. And you said there were two neurosurgeons. Was it because, I mean, 10 hours to be, you know, doing something like that. Did they take turns or do you know? The guy I originally went to, his name, uh, Dr. Alan Friedman, he was the one that told me where the location of my tumor was. He said, there's actually a guy who like invented the surgery and is an expert in this location. And I'm going to call him and ask him to help me. And so he called him. He happened to be in, he spends time in North Carolina and in Japan to do these surgeries. And he like has written books on how to do my type of surgery. And so he did my surgery also. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Thank goodness. And then, so take us to like through, you know, the next period of time and, and, and then how you are now and, and just what it, yeah. How you're doing now. Yeah. So I, post-surgery was extremely difficult. I, I don't think I walked on my own, like without, I could walk unsteadily, but I don't think I walked steadily on my own for at least a week post-surgery. So I remember getting so tired of waking drew up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom that I think one night he caught me crawling to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, I'm not waking it. Like, you know, you feel so like codependent, like you can't do anything on your own. I was just ready um, to do that. So it took me about a week to walk. And when we started walking again, Drew would hold my hand. And I think like the first time I just made it to the end of the driveway and that was it. Like that was all I had. And I went back and I think I slept for a long time um, so the recovery part for me was definitely challenging. We were, I don't know. I feel like I was trying, I was, I, I feel like as an athlete, you expect in, instant gratification, like, mm. Hey, I should be better by now. And it, it's just, it doesn't work like that with your brain. It takes a while to heal. It takes a while to get back. Um, so not only that, I had lost my hearing in my right ear. I still don't have, I'm still deaf in my right ear today. And my right eye was completely crossed because, uh, my abducens nerve had, had been, um, injured. So I felt like I looked different. I wasn't myself. I wasn't comfortable in my own body. Um, and I think that took a long time for me to get over. Do you feel like from a prognosis standpoint or are you, is it, are you in the clear? They were not able to get all of my tumor out. So they left some that was on the brainstem. They left a little bit that was on the basilar artery. Things that could like really impair me or paralyze me or hurt me um, in the long run. They left that tumor on those things. So I ended up having radiation uh, starting January 1st of the next year after I had surgery. But yeah, I feel good. Now I feel great. I've had a couple eye surgeries. Um, I work out like I did when I played. I got my balance back, everything. I feel completely normal. Yeah, I'm deaf in my right ear, but I feel like that's like nothing. Oh, my goodness. It's good to hear how you feel today, you know, just to kind of bring it all the way full circle and, and back. 
I mean, Lauren, the it's the fact that you've lived this, and this is a huge part of your story, but there are other things like having heart surgery when you were, what, three, and it's amazing. Um, thank, you, thank you for sharing it. And as you look back at this, I can only imagine the reflection and for people who are going through difficult, challenging times, you know, of their own personally, professionally, what's the biggest lesson you've had from this experience? Just not giving up. Like my new normal is totally different. Like I was an Olympic athlete and I felt great about my body and I never questioned my body. And I felt like a totally different person than I do now. Like if I get a cough, I'm like, okay, do I have X, Y, and Z? Or, you know, if I feel a headache, it's like, do I still have, do I have brain tumor? Like questioning my body and questioning that. I feel like just being a new person, you know, like I, I really am a different person. And I think it, it's, it's made me grow in so many ways. And I feel like accepting that and being proud of that is something I have also learned to do. And then I think my last thing that I would say is, Something I repeated to myself over and over again during this process was there may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And like seeing my daughter's face constantly reminds me that joy does come in the morning. And it may not be tomorrow and it may not be the next day and it may not be when you expect it, but it does come. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And you would repeat this to yourself. Just it was your mantra. It was my mantra. I feel like every night before I went to sleep, if I had a headache, if my head was throbbing, I would just remind myself, like, there may be pain tonight, but joy comes in the morning. And it always has. Wow. Oh, my goodness. The the takeaways. And just, you should be so proud to have navigated this the way you did and and then to be willing to share this, it's such a gift to us, you know, to learn from your experience and to uh, be able to, you know, hear the the things that have come from this. And, you know, as you, as you look at, you know, I, I'm thinking about Drew, too. Do you guys talk about it often and reflect often, just the, you know, the, the takeaways and the realizations? I don't know if you do, and it's as... This is not comparable, but I know with, with my husband and having Lincoln in the NICU for three months, we're still realizing things. Like the gifts are still coming from the experience and the realizations. Um, it's still fairly fresh. But do you find yourself just learning more and more as time goes on? Yes. Mm-hmm. So Drew is um, he's very reserved. He's a little more quiet than I am. And I think he has a harder time expressing himself. So it was actually maybe like a year and a half or two years after this whole experience. And I'm brushing my teeth to get ready for bed. And he just came in the bathroom and he was like, I was terrified that I wasn't going to have you. Hmm. And I was like, I wanted to look at my watch and be like, excuse me, this is two years later. But um, I feel like everyone processes in their time. Mm -hmm. And so now I feel like we are much more open and we talk about it. Um, But for the longest time, Drew was just like, he had, he had to be the strong one. And he, he took on that role fully. And I feel like he didn't 
let his guard down for anyone to see like how scared he was or how hard it was on him um, for a very long time. And so I feel like we're constantly learning still, and this is three years later, just like even how we were feeling in that moment or, you know, what was affecting him. And when I thought he was, you know, strong and okay. Oh yeah. I think that's so important and powerful for you to share, you know, as I've been thinking about this a lot lately, too, of how we process things. Sometimes it's not linear. Sometimes it's not even chronological. And it's it's like whenever our kind of mental capacity can do it, it will do it. But right. it's not like we can control processing. You know, it's even I don't know if people said this to you as you were going through and recovering, like, just don't forget to feel and process so it doesn't catch up with you later. And I don't really feel like that's how it works. You know, it's not like we get to pick and choose necessarily. Um, but the, Absolutely. yeah, I don't, I don't believe we're ever going to get more than we can handle. And that that's in a way, it's a way to protect ourselves emotionally and mentally and even physically to take on things when we can, when we're ready. Because I, I can imagine that protective bubble of like with Drew and you, I mean, I'm sure you felt that way too. I think sometimes that can block out the ability to filter and process. And I felt, Absolutely. I felt that way for sure. It was like, okay, first, no, we're going to take care of business. We're going to find solutions. We're going to get things done. You do what you have to do. And then you try to just take it in stride and, and do what you can to get through. Wow. And how do you feel as you're sharing this now? Is this something you plan to do more of? Or are you feeling inspired to to share? Or how's it feeling? I actually was very, like I told you before, very anti-sharing. Um, and then how we connected was through the Superhero Project. Kelly had asked me to speak just right after I had uh, the year after I had finished, you know, radiation and had just went through everything. And I had always said, like, I don't want to share my story. I don't want to talk to people about it. Like I just had just a, I wasn't interested. And then Kelly asked me and I was like, absolutely. Like the NICU was by far the hardest part for me. So I remember being like, I will absolutely like share my story. I will do whatever you need me to do. Like if that means we're helping other moms that are going through or other families that are going through the same thing I did. But I think really what helped me process and I would have never done this. This is another story. And I'm sorry, this is the craziness of my life. But after I had JT, I went home the month of December, which would be New Orleans from North Carolina. And then January 1st, I would start radiation. And when I went back to go for radiation, my husband had gotten us a private flight because he was like, it was just going to be JT and I. He was like, look, you don't even walk straight yet. Like, I would prefer for you to, you know, just fly private, make sure that you're there. And during that flight, we had to emergency land. The door seal popped and oxygen mask came down. I'm holding the oxygen mask over JT's face. Uh, we emergency landed in Peachtree City, Georgia, and I ended up driving someone drove me the rest of the way to North Carolina uh, so I could make radiation the next day. And during my time, 
getting radiation, I couldn't sleep. And I remember telling my sister, like, hey, I can't sleep. Like, radiation's, like, weird, you know? They said I would be tired, but, like, I'm up all night. Like, I can't sleep. And she was like, hey, sis, I think you have post-traumatic stress. Like, I think you should probably talk to somebody. Like, a lot has happened in the last six months that you really need to, like, talk to somebody. Like, you not sleeping isn't a side effect of radiation. And I did. I, you know, I realized in that moment, like, wow, I, I did go through a lot in the last however many months. And maybe the airplane ride was what set me over the top. But I think that it's just so important to talk to somebody and really take care of your mental health too. So I've, I've seen a counselor since then off and on. and I feel like they helped me and walked me through so many of the feelings I was feeling toward, you know, like even not sharing my story and just like the fear every time I get on an airplane and, you know, just everything that like the fear of losing my child, the fear of like us, not my husband losing me and my child. And I feel like that was a huge thing for me to do. And I feel like with that healing, I've been able to share my story way more. And I feel like I, I want to share it. Oh, I'm like, I'm in tears over here. It's, I mean, just that piece alone, which is, you know, a sliver of your entire story and all of the other things that people can gain from this, but to encourage people to to know that it's okay to get some help in, in dealing with this. And, oh, I'm like, gosh, you're really hitting home with me right now, too. Um, it's I'm so grateful that you're open to, to sharing more because I just know for a fact, I mean, I'm already a beneficiary of you sharing this. So thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, I just... I feel so honored to have heard this firsthand and to be able to share it with everyone who's listening. And, you know, there's probably so much more to it, too, that you'll uncover the gifts that this experience is able to lend. And uh, talking it through sometimes is the best way to uncover those, I at least I've found so far. Um, I agree. And just one more question as far as your experience in, in working with someone and and counseling and did you work through the you know the feeling that it was your fault and your body failing and and have you done some work on that area because I know so many people who and myself included who have been in those situations where you feel guilt and and how you've been able to navigate that yeah I think that was probably one of if not the biggest thing for me was feeling that guilt and even feeling guilt, like toward your spouse. Like I put him through a lot, you know, like I felt like, gosh, I wouldn't blame him if he wanted to leave, you know, like there, I, I remember feeling that. And I remember feeling like that, you know, I'm a lot right now. Like this is a lot to process. This is a lot in general. And I remember having a conversation with, with him telling him like, you don't like just run now. And he's like, you're ridiculous. Like, what are you talking about? You know? But I think that a lot of our guilt, what I learned and a lot of our, our shame and our guilt, like it comes before whatever happened. 
And maybe we don't express it in a, in a certain way. Um, but when something like that happens, it's easy for us to take the blame. And what I realized in my counseling was I've done that my whole life. Like I did that when I was a kid. If my parents argued, I would blame myself, you know, like I did that growing up with many things. Like if we lost a game, but I think that that also drove me to be great at what I was great at. Like it drove me to be um, special in areas that other people weren't because I did carry that. So there are like benefits and there are positives to your characteristics, your personality, but they can also be negatives in other ways. And I, I never looked at it like that until I went through counseling and I talked about my childhood and I realized like, Oh wow, I did do that. That this is like a common theme of mine, but now it's just like times 10 because I had a baby that was in the NICU and I feel like I failed her, you know, like there, it just was heightened. And I feel like working through it, you realize that a lot of these characteristics you have as, as an adult, they really stem from something so long ago. Oh, I've, yes. It, it, it uncovers and surfaces things that have existed for so long. I've found that a bit too in navigating post some of the, the trauma, um, which is another message like to let other people know that, you know, a lot of what, we deal with is the surface and uncovering things that have always been there that maybe we didn't know. So it's another way to address them. Like it's an opportunity to address them, but wow. Thank you so much, Lauren. I, um, I'm just in awe of your grace and your generosity too. Um, the, you know, not only with the superhero project, but just in general, you and your family. And um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your your time. And we'll be following you. What's the best place that people can follow along as they they want to continue to witness your journey? I use Instagram, Lauren Holiday Twelve, and Twitter. And I believe that they're the same handles for both. Lauren Holiday 12. That would probably be the best way to follow along. Amazing. We will definitely be doing that. And oh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your Why Not Now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? Thank you.